Hey everybody, you're listening to Life Below the Surface, presented by Carriage Kia. The podcast where we take you on a deeper dive into the lives of the animals at Georgia Aquarium and the people who care for them. Coming up on this episode. The sea otters here in Atlanta, they are viewable, visible to millions of guests every year. And they are, as I've said, a very powerful conservation case. When we opened the aquarium in 2005, we brought two southern sea otters from California that were living at another aquarium out west and and transported them here to Atlanta. And uh, the city fell in love with, with Oz and Gracie. I'm Josh Blaylock. For the past 20 years, I've been in the zoological community. I was an animal care specialist for 15 of those years, caring for sea lions, dolphins, otters, walruses, birds, and a wide variety of different species. And now I'm very happy to be the senior manager of exhibits and projects here at Georgia Aquarium. In this podcast, I'm going to introduce you to some of my amazing co-workers and tell you some behind-the-scenes stories of how Georgia Aquarium works. This is Life Below the Surface, presented by Carriage Kia. Life Below the Surface is presented by Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Carriage is Georgia's leading Kia dealer and one of the top dealers in the entire nation. Service, community, and education are hallmarks of Carriage Kia in Woodstock. When it's time for you to lease or purchase your new vehicle, we hope you'll consider Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Check them out 24-7 at carriagekiawoodstock.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Life Below the Surface, the show where we talk about all things slimy, fuzzy, and all species in between. This is Josh, your host, and today we are joined by Senior Director of Mammals and Birds, Dennis Kristen, to talk more about our fuzzy friends, the Southern Sea Otter, and learn more about their unique adventure to come here to Georgia Aquarium. Welcome to the podcast, Dennis. Thanks, Josh. Good to see you, buddy. So a lot of you folks out there listening might remember Dennis from our TV series, The Aquarium, where he was featured quite a bit. But Dennis, if you could, for some of the folks that, uh, that might not have seen that just yet, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be here at Georgia Aquarium? Well, I am a senior director in our zoological operations department and with a focus on our mammal and bird teams. So I look after a lot of the different animals here that fall under that category and, of course, work with an amazing department, a team of animal care professionals that are specialized with the care of everything from our puffins to our penguins, beluga whales, harbor seals, Asian small cloud otters, and sea otters. So basically every single adorable species in the aquarium your yeah. department is responsible for. I have a good role here for sure. And how I came to the aquarium, um, I've been here almost 17 years. So I've been here almost since the beginning of Georgia Aquarium or since the opening of Georgia Aquarium. I was recruited to Georgia Aquarium. I was working at a small marine research education and public aquarium in Alaska, actually. So I recruited from Alaska to Georgia. You couldn't almost get further apart in the, in the United States. And uh made the journey here in 2006. Initially, my role was one of the assistant managers in our zoological operations team, and I was responsible for the entire Cold Water Quest gallery. So everything from a spider crab to a California sea lion and a beluga whale and all species in between. And that was a a very unique role. At that time, the aquarium animal care group was kind of organized a little bit differently than it is now. Right now, I'm, I'm responsible for mammals and birds, and we have directors that are responsible for fish and inverts and it's kind of broken up by animal groups Mm -hmm. whereas back then it was broken up by or divided 
organized by gallery. So you had specialists that, you know, I had aquarists that reported to me that had a lot of experience with cold water fishes. And then I had specialists that had a lot of penguin experience, blue whale experience, things like that. Very cool. So kind of during that time, and I honestly, when I visited as a guest, it wasn't until 2010, which is well before I actually started here. Have Southern sea otters always been a part of our animal population here? Yes. Southern sea otters were some of the first mammals that arrived at Georgia Aquarium. And we had uh, our first two animals were very special animals, Oz and Gracie. They're no longer with us, but they lived very long lives here at Georgia Aquarium and they're a very special part of our Southern sea otter history. All right. So we'll talk about Oz and Gracie in just a little bit, but I think we're kind of at a good point in our discussion too, because I'm very curious. There are different types of sea otters, correct? Yes. Yeah. There are a few different subspecies of sea otters. The sea otters that we have at Georgia Aquarium are Southern sea otters, which inhabit the central coast of California. It's a very threatened subspecies. It's listed on the U.S. Endangered Species Act as threatened. There's not very many of them and they're very vulnerable. And then there are sea otters that inhabit the waters of Washington state through British Columbia into Alaska. Those are the northern sea otters. And then there's another subspecies that's kind of more on the through the Aleutians down into the waters off of Asia. Understood. It's interesting because in my in my job here at the aquarium, one of the roles that I play is is finding the proper photos and content that go on our interactives, that, that go on our interpretive graphics and our educational elements that guests can experience as they walk through the Coldwater Quest Gallery. And just last year, finishing up a project with the sea otters, what I found very interesting was how difficult it was for, you know, finding stock photos or things like that, like finding wild photos that were labeled properly. Yeah. So if if one of our listeners out there is trying to distinguish the difference between them, are there any like, you know, physiological things? Is there any way when you're looking at a photo, you can be like, that's a southern sea otter or yeah. that's one of the northern ecotypes? Is there yeah. is there a way to kind of tell them apart? Because I had to learn kind of on the fly for for last year's cold water project. There's a couple of things. Um, it's very difficult just looking at a sea otter if it's a sea otter just laying on the surface of the water, unless there's some sort of scale. Northern sea otters are generally quite a bit larger than southern sea otters. So if you see an, you know, an adult southern sea otters can be substantially smaller than a northern, but also just kind of looking at what the environment is. And so if you see a, a sea otter that's wrapping itself in a certain species of kelp, there's a lot of different types of kelp that would inhabit or, or you would find in different parts of their range. Gotcha. Yeah. So if you're taking a cruise from San Francisco to Alaska, the otters that you see when you leave San Francisco are going to look a little bit different than the ones when you reach Alaska. Yeah. If you see an otter in San Francisco, that's going to be pretty awesome. Nice. <laughs> you probably see them a little bit further south. A little bit further yeah. south. But Fair ideally uh, in their in their original range, and there's a, there's a desire to see sea otters again, southern sea otters in the the San Francisco Bay area. So yeah, gotcha. hopefully within our, within our careers, we'll see that someday. Yeah. I knew that that was my segue into that ah. little, uh, conservation tidbit there. So there you go. No, I'm, I'm lying. I had no idea, but <laughs> that's okay. So with that being said, with, with the desire to bring, to bring them back and then we're, we'll kind of lead into kind of our role here at the aquarium. What role does this species play in their environment? Why are they so important? And you had mentioned kelp, which yep. is, I know a big uh, kind of hot button conservation topic right now. Can you just kind of go into a little bit about uh, the role that sea otters play and and how actually this weird plant, you know, that yep. everyone knows kelp, but they don't know what kelp actually does or or why otters are so much a part of that, of kelp's story. Yeah. Well, the sea otters have a very fascinating history. When you go back 
within the last century even. These are animals that have experienced quite a bit in terms of hunting pressure over the last couple of centuries. There was a, a fur trade. They are an animal that has the most dense fur of any mammal. And that, that luxurious fur came at a cost. And they were hunted throughout their range and in many areas were extirpated, were essentially extinct from that region of the coast. And once that happened, it was pretty interesting in that it changed the, the balance of those ecosystems. So they inhabit rocky coasts along the Pacific, and they, they are predators of a lot of different invertebrates. They eat a lot of clams, abalone, sea urchins, things that like to graze. And when you take a sea otter out of that environment, you see an abundance of those grazers and they essentially take out large swaths of what would have normally been a kelp forest. Kelp forests are fascinating ecosystems. They're a hotbed of diversity and almost like a a little nursery of sorts um, for different fishes, different fish species. And so when you take sea otters out of that, you see an abundance of mostly sea urchins that kind of overpopulate and they graze out the kelp. Another aspect of kelp is it kind of helps with dampening wave action. And when you remove the kelp, you see a strong drop in the diversity of, of animals that inhabit those areas, and then also a lot more wave action and, and erosion of, of coastlines. So sea otters are really important to that, that marine ecosystem, that coastal ecosystem. And so when sea otters started kind of coming back, knocking back some of those those grazer uh, inverts, mm-hmm. um, we saw a, a kind of a return to those those uh, more natural kelp forest kind of ecosystems and returns of, you know, fish populations and things that um, were really good for, for the environment. Sure. And this is kind of a, <laughs> it's funny, this is kind of a shameless plug in a way, but one of my favorite things about the cold water project that I was a part of last year was that we created an, an interactive, basically. It's mm-hmm. very similar to kind of like Fruit Ninja, something like that, where <laughs> you get to be the otter yeah. and your role is taking out the urchins to save the kelp forest. Yep. It was a really fun thing to be a part of and, and, and kind of work on that. So I see you out there playing with it every morning. So I know you're very proud of it. <laughs> I do really enjoy that yeah. game and I'm pretty sure I have the highest score. Yeah. So, yeah. and whoever does have the highest score, I will come back tomorrow and, and be take it Don't out. Worry. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. So you guys are, if you're walking through, it's right by the, uh, it's right by the sea otter habitat. You can kind of play with a cool interactive to learn about everything that, that Dennis just mentioned there. So so we just learned a little bit about how important they are in the in the role that they play. So what role do our sea otters here at Georgia Aquarium play in that whole conservation story? Well, a large part of conservation, Josh, is, is really getting the message out that there is something to be concerned about or to even be worth conserving. Sea otters play a huge role in that. And fortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, they are very charismatic. It's hard not to see a sea otter and just want to fall in love. It's one of those exhibits throughout my career found fascinating. I've worked with sea otters my entire career. I've been doing this for almost 33 years, and it's been fascinating to me the entire time. That is the one type of animal that you can see guests walk up to, and the animals might not be doing anything but sleeping, and guests are just infatuated. They'll stay there for 20 minutes sometimes just watching an animal sleep. And you don't really see that with, with too many other animal exhibits. And so it's kind of a benefit in a way that you have this animal that is such a key part of the marine ecosystem that has had a very tumultuous history. And there are populations that are, that are still very vulnerable. And so from a conservation status, 
the impact that Georgia Aquarium has with the popularity of, of this as an institution, the, the mission that we have to better understand and conserve these types of animals is very important and powerful to get the message out that these are animals that, yes, they're cute, yes, they're fascinating, but they actually have a very important conservation story to, to be told. And Georgia Aquarium is, is a very important part of telling that story. Once again, it's time for a quick break as we dive right into the Fin Files with Carly and Kelsey. What do we got today? So Josh, today, sea otters, largest weasel, smallest marine mammal. Love them, right? Who doesn't love a sea otter? They have some of the densest fur of any mammal, but did you know that when they're born, their fur is actually so dense that the pups can't physically dive to get their own food? I actually did not know that at all. They're just too floofy. They can't possibly get themselves underwater, so the parents leave them floating at the surface. They'll dive to get the food to feed the pups, and the pups just kind of chill at the surface, just being fluffy and cute. That's very cool. Well, let me ask you guys a question now. As both on the content team, Mm. is floof an actual accepted scientific term now? It definitely should be. I think floof has made its way into popular culture in a way that we can't deny anymore. Fair enough. Folks listening at home, if you take nothing away from this fun fact, (laughs) it's that floof should be a scientific term. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on Fin Files. Let's take a little trip back in time here. Let's go back 17 years. And can you kind of tell us, you know, you had mentioned uh, Oz and Gracie earlier. Take us through kind of the timeline of, of Southern sea otters here at at Georgia Aquarium, and I'm sure sure some of our listeners are, are quite attached to some of them. You know, some of these sea otters actually have their own fan pages and things like that. So just kind of tell us about the, the history of sea otters here at Georgia Aquarium and how some of them or all of them got here. Great. We have been very fortunate here at Georgia Aquarium and within my department to be able to care for some amazing animals. Obviously, we care about these animals as a species and, and want to conserve them. But when we have the opportunity to work with individual animals like like these sea otters, it is a very powerful and impactful role to, to play. And we've been blessed, for lack of a better word, to, to have some amazing long-lived sea otters within our population here. When we opened the aquarium in 2005, we brought two southern sea otters from California that were living at another aquarium out west and and transported them here to Atlanta. And uh, the city fell in love with with Oz and Gracie, and they lived far beyond their their average life expectancy and and lived very, very good lives here and, and really served as strong ambassadors for opening the eyes of, of a lot of people, millions and millions of guests that had come through the aquarium during those years. In 2010, we were working with our colleagues out at the Monterey Bay Aquarium that has a uh, sea otter research and conservation program. A very strong uh, Monterey Bay's program is, is internationally recognized. And they are one of the few facilities at that time, the only facility that had what we call a surrogate program. The, the journey or the, the evolution of rescue and rehabilitation of sea otters has been quite interesting. These are animals that spend upwards of almost a year with their moms after they're born. They're very, very dependent and require a lot of coaching, mentoring. They learn their foraging skills from their mom. Unlike some other species, like a, a lot of harbor seals or a lot of phocid seals, have very brief maternal 
investment periods where they're with their moms for sometimes only with some species only days if not a week and like for harbor seals that we have here at georgia aquarium usually three to four weeks before they're weaned they have a lot of innate kind of skills that uh once the moms kind of wean them they just go off on their own and, and survive sea otters don't do that very well and it took a lot of trial and error to kind of figure that out and for the most part if you don't have an ability to really provide that maternal care for the pups that are rescued, it's very difficult to reintegrate them back successfully into the wild. And the Monterey Bay team since the mid eighties has been trying this in various forms and they, they've gone, you know, where they had animal care staff that were pretty much just totally invested in trying to do everything possible to play the part of a sea otter mom and teach these pups everything they would need to know to be able to forage and how to find food and how to break it open. And, and they tried a number of times to rehabilitate animals like that and release them back into the, into the wild and had very little success doing that. And so for a long time, if there was a stranded sea otter pup, it was pretty much deemed non-releasable by the U S fish and wildlife service, um, pretty quickly, you know, and then provided a home was available at a, at an accredited institution, uh, uh, an aquarium or a zoo, uh, that animal would be moved into that, that sort of public display type realm. But what the folks at Monterey Bay Aquarium started doing was taking some of their older females in their exhibit, their exhibit population, and essentially using them as surrogate moms for these stranded pups, where they would provide one of their older females with a, with a newly stranded pup, see if the female would take it under her wing, for lack of a better word, and start raising the pup. And that became a very successful program. To this day, it's very successful, and it's starting to branch out into into some other partner facilities that that we hopefully will be working with in the future on that as well. But the limiting factor is the number of females that can serve as surrogates because it's a very there's only a, a handful of them. It takes a long time, and there have been years where there's more pups stranding or being either abandoned, or in the case of some of the animals that we've brought here to Georgia Aquarium, their mothers were preyed upon by white sharks and and therefore abandoned and so if there's not enough surrogates in the in the program then those animals are deemed non-releasable and an effort is made to try and place them into into aquariums and zoos so you'd mentioned that about them being orphaned and and things like that are the sea otters that guests can come see now Mm -hmm. are there any interesting kind of rescue stories from from our current population yeah i think they all sort of have interesting rescue stories you know we have Currently at the aquarium, we have five sea otters, southern sea otters. Three of them were brought here in 2010, so they're 12 years old. And uh, and we have a a pair of three-year-olds that if you did watch our series, The Aquarium, you saw the backstory of Gibson and Mara uh, and their their journey to Georgia Aquarium. If you go back to our 12-year-olds, we have Brighton, we have Bixby, and we have Cruz. Brighton was a, a young female that looked like she was prematurely weaned for some reason or another. She was an, she was several months old when she stranded and she was very sick with a essentially inflammation of her digestive tract based on the fact that she was dealing with a very significant parasite load. The treatment for that and given her age and the fact that to clear her of those parasites was going to take almost upwards of a year of treatment, she was deemed non-releasable at that point. And so she's an animal that we put our hands up. Um, we were at that point interested in adding more sea otters to our population here in Atlanta. And she was made available to us by the agency that that oversees the sea otter regulations. And so she's an animal that we 
that I was able to bring here with the help of the folks at Monterey and some friends that we had at, uh, at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And uh, we moved her here on a, on a cargo flight, and it was a, a neat experience. Also that same year, there was a young female uh, that was about four weeks old or so when she was abandoned. She was found pretty much by kayakers on the water. Their sea otter pups, when they're when they're very young, uh, have a very unique vocalization. They scream, and it's uh, it's uh, it's hard to miss. It makes your ears bleed sometimes. Just kidding. And so she was found next to a, a remains of of her mom uh, that had been preyed upon by a white shark. And so she was brought to the, the Monterey Bay Aquarium. There was not a surrogate available, but the Monterey folks knew that we had space here at Georgia Aquarium to to welcome not only Brighton, but a, but another female as well. Part of that arrangement with Monterey was once we knew they had a pup, we would deploy or send staff out to, to be of assistance to that team to make sure that the burden or the workload of taking care of a sea otter is very significant and, and to kind of lay that onto that that stranding team there, we wouldn't want that effort to kind of detract from the, the care of the animals that they also have. And so we sent a, a number of staff out there to help with that process. Staff that live here in Atlanta, that worked at the aquarium, mm-hmm. were able to actually go out into the field basically. And, and with Monterey Bay Aquarium's assistance, of course, they were able to actually help care yes. these animals. So an Atlanta-based organization, we were able to send people to the coast of California to help with these guys. Yes, yeah, for, really cool. for several weeks. And while we had staff out there, there was another very similar case, another white shark preyed upon female that was, was taken out and essentially abandoned a very young lesson. It was about two weeks old, and that was Cruz. The issue that we had at that time was there was not really any more room at the inn, for lack of a better way of expressing that. The Monterey folks uh, work with the, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. They have a, a group uh, that specializes on kind of knowing everything there is to know about sea otters and and which facilities might have space to accept, not only space, but also expertise to accept very young sea otter pups. And when Cruz was recovered, there were really no more opportunities to place him. And so he was, when the stranding folks get to that situation, their only choice at that point is humane euthanasia. If there's not a, a space in the surrogacy program, there's not a space at a, an accredited facility, then the most humane thing to do at that point is to is to put that that pup down, unfortunately, which makes, you know, it's it's hard to wrap your mind around that. This is a threatened species. Why could you do that? Um, but it's it's it is the most responsible thing to do. We had staff out there caring for Bixby at the time, and I got a phone call late. There's another young pup. It's a male. Male sea otters are a little bit more. They take a little bit more ingenuity, I guess, and they're a bit more of a challenge to manage sometimes. Um, and so we have to be careful with the, the dynamic that we have in terms of uh, the number of males and females that we would manage here with our exhibit. But we made the choice at that time that, you know, this animal was, was destined to be put down, to be euthanized. And, you know, we had our hands full with, with two sea otters that we were taking on already, um, but we made the choice to, to extend and uh, do we did there and uh, and saved that little sea otter and brought him back with Bixby on a private plane and uh, never looked back. He's he's an amazing amazing animal that we've learned a lot from. Yeah. Well, Dennis, I'm not going to lie. You know, throughout that story you just told, I'm kind of hearing some 
some Sarah McLaughlin in the background. Uh, this kind of oh. has that AS or that SPCA kind of commercial vibe to oh. it. I mean, w- w- when you think about these animals, they are undeniably probably one of the most adorable species, mm-hmm. not just here at the aquarium, but but on the planet. But when you hear about how much that they're going through, you know, hear about habitat loss, when you hear about that how difficult the you know, rehab and rehabilitation process is for them. It's a lot different than like a, a, a California sea lion that can go out into a group and, and basically learn from the group. So it seems like these animals have a lot kind of going against them. Yes. But it's really cool to know that there's actually a whole bunch of people, ourselves included, that care very much about these critters. And especially in that story just there, when the alternative was, you know, the animal not being here anymore, that the decision was made to to prolong that animal's life. And now he's a private plane to Atlanta and now live in the, the sweet life here in the Coldwater Quest Gallery. I mean, that's very much a positive. So what can our listeners, with all of that being said, what is one positive impact that our our listeners and our visitors can have on southern sea otters? What is a, you know, one or a, a couple things that can help this species out that any any person can do? It's a really good point. These sea otters here in Atlanta, they are viewable, visible to millions of guests every year. And they are, as I've said, a very powerful conservation kind of case. And the message is very simple. And it's something that you hear a lot. You know, everybody has a role to play. Our goal here is is to inspire people to care about these animals. We obviously care about them. We want to do everything possible to make sure that these are animals that live for generations without impact um, based on our activities. But the honest truth is our activities have an impact on these animals. And with the case of the Southern Sea Otter, there's a, there's a number of things. Unfortunately, these are animals that are succumbing or being exposed more and more to runoff related to agricultural runoff, but also curiously, they're very susceptible to a parasite called toxoplasmosis. If you you might know of it. It's one of the reasons that if you're an expectant mother, you're not supposed to change or tend to your cat's litter box. It's a parasite that is is transmissible through cat feces. And so what we're seeing is sea otters are coming up with this toxoplasmosis. Or toxo, they're exposed to this toxoplasma. And that's having an issue on that. It creates a lot of neurological issues for them. They just, they're not equipped to handle it. And so we're seeing issues with people poorly or improperly disposing of their pet waste, essentially, it's creating an issue for them, probably related somewhat to just the population of that exists along that same coastline, the number of cats, the number of pets, feral or otherwise. And, and so that's an issue, but also marine debris. These are animals that are very curious, and they're actually one of the few species actually that use tools to help their efforts in getting into the hard-shelled invertebrates that they eat and they'll go down and bring up a clam but also bring up a rock and smash the clam against the rock but they use other things and they're very curious in their environment and so when they're people are using a lot of single-use plastic bags those tend to unfortunately end up in the ocean and there's animals that are you know photographed with bags on their head you know essentially not surviving that sort of interaction with with marine debris and so just being careful of what we're utilizing in our day-to-day lives trying to take every effort to use things that are more sustainable and are less likely to end up in the ocean and end up being an issue for these animals and and the other animals that live in the marine environment so basically if you live in california or are visiting the coast of california just pick up after yourself and pick up after your pet and that can actually make a world of difference to these animals 
to these animals, but also again, everybody has a role to play. You know, every stream leads to the ocean. And so even though we're hundreds of miles away from the ocean, guests or, or residents of, of Atlanta have, have a role to play too, because it's not just the sea otter, it's the sea turtle. It's, it's whales that are, that are washing up with stomachs full of single use plastics, sea turtles that are watching up with straws up their, up their nose and, and things like that. So lots of decisions that people have to make in their day-to-day lives, but understanding that, you know, just cutting back helps. It makes a big difference. Right. All good. Very, very, very good points there. All right, let's take a break and get behind the scenes as we look into unique jobs here at Georgia Aquarium, some of which don't require a wetsuit. I'm being joined today by Sam Herman, who's our senior manager of guest programs. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Josh. Nice to see you. All right. So, Sam, why don't you go ahead and just tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and what it is you do here. Yeah. So, like Josh said, I'm Sam Herman, senior manager in guest programs. In guest programs, our department oversees both on-the-floor interpretation in the galleries. So if you're there talking to anyone about the animals here at the aquarium, that's probably my team. We also oversee all of the non-animal-focused public programs. So if you come and do a behind-the-scenes tour, if you celebrate your birthday party with us here, or if you sleep over at the aquarium, uh, that's also my team is going to help you out. Very cool. So let's take it back a little bit. How does someone get to become the senior manager of guest programs. It seems like it's, it's kind of a, a specific kind of job. You know, what your team does is, is very unique. You know, it's not something that you hear every day. So how did you actually get, how did you get here? How'd you get into this role in, in guest programs? Yeah, so growing up, I went to a lot of aquariums and kind of fell in love with the ocean. And I usually tell my friends that I went through all the stages of marine biologists. So I started wanting to be a dolphin trainer because I think that's where everyone starts off. And then I had a whole PhD that I was starting to plan out in molecular marine biology, but then I did an internship at a different aquarium, education focused, and I realized that I could make my career talking to people and inspiring them to love the ocean the same way I do, and that kind of took off from there. So I've now worked at four different aquariums, and it's been really awesome, and it's really exciting to be able to help inspire people in the way that I was inspired by visiting aquariums growing up. Very cool. A lot of people actually don't know this about me, but I actually started in education. So I was a docent and did the tours and, and things like that. It really is an unbelievable opportunity, especially for you know younger folks that are just in college or trying to figure it out, you know what they want to do in this field. It's a it's a great department. It's a great field to actually get into, isn't it? Yeah. Are there parts of the aquarium you have not worked at, Josh? Uh, I have not uh, cooked any food okay. yet, so nothing in culinary. Pretty much everything else, uh, I think I, I have dabbled in at uh, at some point there. So, all right, Sam. To wrap up. Why don't you give us one of your favorite experiences from your time here at the aquarium? Yeah, it's just been really awesome to be here at Georgia Aquarium. I think that we have animals that no one else has. And so every day you get to talk about the animals we have that you'll get to see behind me. But I think that my favorite thing here has been helping my team in the way that we talk about our animals. And so I think that we see more people than any other aquarium in the country. And so the opportunities we have here are really huge. Uh, And so I just really love every day that I get to actually be on the floor, talk to guests, work with my team, problem solve, and make sure that both the guests and my staff are having a really awesome day at the aquarium. Awesome. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today, buddy. So Dennis, you just mentioned a lot about kind of the, the conservation history of sea otters along the coast of California. Can you tell us just a little bit more about the history of sea otters here at 
Georgia Aquarium. You've been here from the beginning, and I know sea otters have been here from the beginning. Can you kind of kind of take us back in time and, and bring us up to present day? Sure. As you said, we've had sea otters here since the beginning. In 2005, we brought a male and a female, Oz and Gracie, that unfortunately they've lived beyond their years and they're no longer with us. But they were amazing animals, amazing ambassadors for their, their species here as we opened the aquarium. And in 2010, there were uh, three additional rescued sea otter pups that were deemed non-releasable by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they were brought here to Atlanta. And again, in 2019, we had another two pups, Mara and Gibson, that were brought to Georgia Aquarium, and fans of our, our show, The Aquarium, would maybe recognize those two uh, names from, they were prominent features on the aquarium so i've heard you say that the phrase non-releasable and i know that was also a part of of the aquarium's stories of these animals can you just kind of go into a little bit of detail what does it mean to be non-releasable yeah that's a great question and it really depends on the type of animal that we're we're talking about but with respect to sea otters sea otters are very dependent on their moms for maternal care as pups they'll stay with their moms for you know six to nine sometimes 12 months learning what everything learning everything that it takes to be a, a sea otter where to go where to find food how to open that food how to eat it how to escape predation things like that and and so when sea otters are orphaned or abandoned as pups for whatever reason that that might be, it's very difficult to step in and train or teach them those types of life skills where they can be successfully reintroduced into the wild, into their natural environment. It's been tried lots of times in, in a lot of different iterations, but it's very, very difficult. And there's a very specific protocol now that's used to be able to do that somewhat successfully, and that's called a surrogate program. But the, the challenge we have is there are very few surrogates that essentially serve as as mothers to these abandoned sea otter pups. There's only a handful of them. And so if there are more sea otter pups stranding in a year than there are surrogates available to to raise them, then those are animals that are generally deemed non-releasable. So, okay. So they get deemed non-releasable. They're very, very young animals and they're given a second chance. Basically, they find a forever home at an accredited facility. So this is the Georgia Aquarium podcast. We're going to talk about Georgia Aquarium. So these young sea otters that don't have a surrogate, basically your team then in a way kind of becomes the surrogate. They become the caretaker. So, so what happens once these young pups get here and your team kind of starts taking care of them? Well, that's a great question. And actually our team starts taking care of them before they're even in Atlanta. We would, once we know that there's a, a pup that's been abandoned that needs to be placed into our care, we work with our partners out on the West Coast at Monterey Bay Aquarium or wherever the stranding facility is and we'll deploy our sea otter care specialists that have experience raising sea otter pups and uh, we'll go out there and, and spend however long it takes to have those animals acclimated and stable and and cleared medically cleared to be able to make the journey to atlanta and while the staff are out there they're they're essentially that that surrogate caretaker sea otters take a tremendous amount of work it's a it's a rotation of grooming their very thick fur making sure that there's no mats that that fur is waterproof it's providing them baths it's providing them food every couple of hours through a through a bottle a special sea otter formula and it's just that on repeat 24 7 for weeks and weeks and weeks dennis thank you very much i've learned way more about these animals than i i've worked here for almost seven years now and i learned a lot today about these incredible critters so before you go you do as we mentioned in the very beginning you do care for all of the adorable critters 
here at the aquarium out of all of them all those species and it honestly it might be the sea otter but what is your what's your favorite <laughs> put me on the spot what but, is your favorite uh it's like you don't have a favorite child you know you can't answer yeah but you kind of do you got to do um honest answer is it probably depends on the day i find i just like a child just like a child it depends on what's what's going on right now to be honest with you as a sitting here we have five little pufflings that were been hatched over the last last couple of weeks and uh i'd say i'm kind of infatuated with watching my phone and our little nest cams uh watching these little puff balls uh grow so quickly so i'm i'm definitely into that sea otters are always a favorite anybody that maybe watch the watch the show or knows me knows that i'm a fan of our harbor seals and rose our little female specifically is is one that always gets me i spend time every day saying hi to her for sure she is adorable she's adorable yeah so didn't really answer your question. It's okay. Nobody really has because everyone, <laughs> everyone's trying to. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of incredible animals here. Yeah. It's really, it's really hard. I mean, one to, of the favorite animals I've ever worked with is, is helping the OV team with uh, with the manta rays behind us here. Just, I mean, they're all they're all very very. They get to me. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I mean, this is a you know, it's this is a very special place, and obviously over seventeen years, you've been a huge part of this aquarium's history and you've you know dedicated your life in the past 17 years of your life to these incredible animals while you know having a family you have your own kids and things like that that you're caring for so you're taking care of i actually just learned that puffling is a word unless you made that up nope that is the actual scientific a term baby puffling. baby puffin a puffin chick is a puffling that's way it's the cutest thing on the planet <laughs> <laughs> pretty sure you got that from harry potter but that's uh, fine nope. <laughs> so with all of that with 17 years of of history at this facility, I'm going to put you on the spot again. What's your favorite memory of this place? My favorite memory. Yeah. Favorite experience. Favorite. Oh, man. Just, just what? flooding. Yeah. Flooding. There was uh, a flood? No, no. Just the memories are flooding. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was going to say, um, well, that would be memorable. Honestly, actually, some of these transports, um, you know, being able to to go out in the field and, and be able to, you know, work with these animals and bring them back here and the the planning and all the expertise and just takes a lot to pull that off and being in the role that I am where that that's my responsibility. It's, it's it, to see that kind of happen and the animals come here and they, they make it into the, into the habitats and, and seeing them thrive is uh, all the memories kind of flood back to, to those moments. So with respect to, you know, maybe the last sea otter transport was probably one of them. And it, and it was, you know, a nice, you know, to get sea otters to Atlanta from California, you have to, you know, there's a lot that goes into moving them. They have to stay cold. You know, we've, we've learned that the best way is just to, to charter a, a private plane. So it's, uh, it sounds a little bougie, I guess, but it is, it, it's for their own best interest. We can get, uh, get a sea otter pup here in a couple of hours from the coast of California, which is, which is what, what they need. And so yeah. the last time when we were moving Gibson and Mara, it was a beautiful plane I, was, I felt kind of bad because we were like moving all these like wet things and chests of ice on this plane that i once we were in the air i learned um the charter before us uh i don't know if i'm allowed to say this or not but it was uh bruno mars was taken <laughs> to hawaii in that same plane so just a little bit of so we had nice little custom sandwiches and they had champagne that they offered us we're like ah. 
nice. at least at least the ones that were on duty they couldn't indulge in that but yeah so it was it was bruno mars's plane and it wasn't it wasn't taylor swift's no okay. it was bruno's bruno's yeah. plane yeah nice because in, in, in a previous episode we talked to andy from the, the sea lion team but i i remember from all the old footage you were a part of yeah those guys coming here so as There's the some- listeners know I started my career at Georgia Aquarium here in Atlanta with our sea lion team. Yes, you did. So all the little guys that I cared for when I first started back in 2016 here were all animals that literally you had just brought from California yeah. months before. Yeah. 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 We could sit here for a couple hours just talking about animal transports and things like that. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, Neptune and Jupiter were animals that I, I brought back. I remember seeing Andy at the facility where those animals were being housed at the time. He was there. So he's in the same footage in a different role. But yeah. It's Very cool. great. Well, I mean, I think now I think we have a reason for you to come back. I think that we could have a part two to talk no, all about. No, I'm uh, good. <laughs> transports. Well, you'll be feeling better next time. You've done great today. So, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, yeah, thank you all for listening in. All right, guys, make sure you don't miss our next episode. We'll be joined by several experts to discuss a world which unfortunately is not so inconceivable is a world without some of our endangered species. We'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by Kia Motors. Life Below the Surface is presented by Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Carriage is Georgia's leading Kia dealer and one of the top dealers in the entire nation. Service, community, and education are hallmarks of Carriage Kia in Woodstock. When it's time for you to lease or purchase your new vehicle, we hope you'll consider Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Check them out 24-7 at carriagekiawoodstock.com.